Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is sponsored by Club W, the revolutionary new wine club that brings delicious bottles of wine right to your door. Join the club and take 50% off your first order by going to clubw.com slash happened today. So That Happened is sponsored by Mile IQ, the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Take Mile IQ for a free 40-drive trial today by texting HAPPENED to 31996. That's HAPPENED to 31996. This podcast contains explicit language. So That Happened... This week, the 2016 campaign went to New Hampshire for the Granite State's first-in-the-nation primaries. And after all the hoopla, all the debates, and all the tea-leaf reading of the state's notoriously late-deciding voters, we ended up with the blowout wins for Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders that all the polls predicted. Neat and tidy, right? Well, for those who didn't finish first, there's trouble ahead. We'll break down the new state of a new race. Meanwhile, payday lenders are a scammy, terrible scourge on this earth preying on the poor in order to profit from consuming their incomes in a cycle of indebtedness. But in the state of Mississippi, there's new hope for everyone who'd like to see these predators brought to heel. We'll find out how the Magnolia State could turn the tide back in favor of working folks. Finally, we circle back to another big story, the Flint-led water crisis. And this time we're talking about something positive, specifically how Flint's residents and local activists may actually achieve something that's been lacking in other similar lead water crises around the country, namely a platform for accountability. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Paige Lavender, Lauren Weber, and Christina Wilkie. We will also have a full recap on the most recent Democratic debate. In fact, you know what? That's what's happening first. Well, hello, America and the rest of the world. Welcome back to another edition of So That Happened, where we talk about things that have so happened in politics. My name is Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the Press. And joining me right now, I'm very glad to say, is our good buddy, Zach Carter. Whew, just waking up here in my I tent that, that I live in in our studio. It's so good, to, so good to be waking up with you wonderful people today. Thanks, thanks for bringing up the tent. And as a special treat... The ride or die to everyone who works here. <laughs> That's true. HuffPost politics editor, Paige Lavender. Hello, hello. Happy to be here. We're very glad to have you to here, too. So we're going to talk about the uh, debate which just happened uh, in Wisconsin between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. It was hosted on PBS. Gwen Eiffel and G. Woodruff were our moderators tonight. And I want to see what you guys think about this. Uh, we came into this week with uh, the conclusion of a brutal primary in uh, in, uh, in in North New Hampshire, uh, where where Clinton got mollywopped pretty badly by by Sanders. 
Uh, and we, in the lead up to the debate today, we had just a some real just brutal stuff happening. Sanders in the form of uh, uh, Georgia Representative John Lewis, uh, who at the uh, announcement of the Congressional Black Caucus's endorsement of Clinton today, uh, really just sort of ethered Sanders' claims to having any kind of bona fides in the civil rights movement. It was a real cheap shot, let's be clear. It was that a was, cheap shot. It was an uh, unnecessary cheap shot from John Lewis, who is a deeply respected civil rights leader. And I'm not even sure that what he said was accurate, but we're leaving that aside for the moment. The atmosphere was set today for a pretty charged debate, but for the most part, it was weird how the two candidates were seemingly very aggressive in trying to agree with each other tonight. <laughs> they were very agreeable, very agreeable. Actually, we had a post, uh, I think, about how they disagreed on whether or not they disagreed on something, which is like, <laughs> just to me, like, kind of encapsulates what the whole debate was about. I'm um, not sure I don't like you. <laughs> I know, it was really, it was really complex. I felt like, the, you know, Clinton has, has really, um, I, I think, spent is now spending a lot of energy trying to turn the Sanders candidacy into a referendum on Obama's presidency. Um, and because Sanders is running against the status quo and Obama is the president, I mean, I think it's I think it's pretty clear that implicit in, in Sanders critique of the status quo is a critique of the president. But Sanders doesn't want to explicitly critique the president because the president is still the most popular figure in the Democratic Party. So that, that doesn't play well politically. I felt like a couple of times um, Clinton landed some blows. Other times, you know, not not so much. You know, she went after him on Wall Street. And I will I will say that I am sympathetic and I, I my ears perk up when they talk about Wall Street, because that's what I've covered for the last 10 years. You know, she, she said, you know, if 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 I'm if I can be critiqued for having a super PAC that's funded by Wall Street, then you got you got to critique President Obama. And look, he did Dodd-Frank. So clearly super PACs and, and money in politics don't matter. Sanders said, well, look, obviously money in politics matters. What Democrat would dispute that? And then he made an actual implicit break with the president, which I don't think he has done thus far. I mean, he, he, he just said, look, nobody went to jail. He didn't name Obama you know, by name, but it was the first time that I've seen Sanders say, yeah, actually, there are parts of the Obama legacy that I'm not cool with, including not prosecuting Wall Street bankers. I don't know if that hurts him or helps him in South Carolina, because, you know, I think black voters in South Carolina really like Barack Obama. I think they're also really not psyched about Wall Street bankers. Um, but but I think it's pretty clear that that's that's where this battle is going to be staged for the next, you know couple weeks. Yeah, and it may not help him in South Carolina, but I think that's the thing that really fires up Sanders' base. You know, there there were so many other parts of the debate tonight where I saw a lot of people joking on Twitter that all of Sanders' young followers like would be very confused, like the whole Kissinger thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, kind of joking around, but he does have a really young following. We know this from from exit polling and, and from um, other polls, whatever. So I, I just think that that's the type of statement that Sanders can make. It is a subtle break with Obama, or maybe not a subtle break, even though he didn't name him by name. And I think that his uh, his following, is that's the type of thing they're going to post on Facebook, the type of thing they're going to, like, rave about, like him going against Wall Street and, you know... It, it, and he'll it, raise it's some money off of it. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> he, he's going to make bank off that, for lack so of a better speak. phrase. <laughs> you know, the criticism of the Obama administration or that, that part of the contretemps really became way more explicit at the end of it when when Hillary Clinton basically uh, took Sanders to task for calling him weak and naive and suggesting he needed to be primaried, uh, suggesting that this wasn't about mere disagreement, that, he, that you know, she tried to make the case that he 
has always thought that Clinton was fundamentally a weak Democrat and a weak progressive. You mean Obama? Yeah, right? sorry, yeah, yeah sorry that that, Dem- that Obama was a weak Democrat and a weak progressive. And <laughs> Sanders responded by saying, "I wasn't the guy who ran against him." <laughs> I um, mean, it's interesting. I mean, his that 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 stuff from him talking about prim- primarying Obama. That's actually over cuts to Social Security that Obama was pushing in 2011. So Sanders was saying someone should primary Obama not to replace him, but just to hold his feet to the fire so that he doesn't propose Social Security cuts. And that that I think actually does underscore a fundamental difference in the types of like political strategies that Clinton has pursued over the course of her, over the course of her political career and that Sanders has pursued. They they are different types of Democrats in that respect. Page, here's an interesting observation. Uh, the only Republican who was called out by name on stage tonight, I think, was Henry Kissinger. <laughs> That's a good point. I don't even think I thought about that, but yeah. It, it's it's weird because in the in the Republican debates, they channel their rage at Clinton, Obama all the time. Well, and now Sanders. They've started name-checking Sanders in debates, too, which, you know, came along with him seeing more success like in New Hampshire and places like that. I think maybe it's just down to the fact that they represent at least in some way, shape, or form an extension of an incumbency. But... Uh, and, and and so they have less need to necessarily go after the Republicans, whereas the Republicans are all part of their cases that, well, Rubio made it the best over and over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, it also just felt like more of a, I mean, I would classify this as a debate, what happened tonight between two people, like an actual conversation where we agree on these things, we disagree on these things, whereas the GOP debates just sort of feel like name calling a lot of the time. I mean, a lot of that is because of Donald Trump. You know, you can't, maybe that's, she, he should get the credit for that or whatever. But uh, the GOP debates just feel so much uglier and and superficial in a way, I think. Theatrical, I think. Theatrical yeah. is a good word for it. It just feels like a lot of theatrics to try to get the attention of people and not a lot of substance, which I think is going to maybe be hurtful for them, you know, the further you get into the race. Throughout the pr- the prior Democratic debates, Hillary Clinton has had a, a sort of soft strong point, I think, on foreign policy. And the, the the strong aspect of that is that she clearly knows a lot more about foreign policy than Bernie Sanders does. Tonight, I felt like Bernie Sanders had prepared two or three pretty good speeches on, on foreign policy um, in which he was able to not look like he was in totally over his head and then just point out that Hillary Clinton was a total hawk who has supported a lot of hardcore Republican hawks, including Henry K- Kissinger, who is who is a war criminal, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> killed civilians. Uh, and and it, it ended up making that section of the debate like a real wash. That should have been an area where Clinton should be able to like assert her superiority. But she just doesn't actually support military policies that the Democratic Party post-Iraq is really psyched about. The Democratic Party base is basically an anti-war base after the Iraq war. The way she tried to pivot around the, the Kissinger critique, this was an amazing moment in the debate where, where, where Sanders was like, look, she knows more than me about this stuff. Like, I get it. She knows more than me, which is a tough concession to make. I think basically you kind of look like an idiot when you're saying my opponent is just better at me. Like, that's not a good, that's not a good look. But then he says, but she also likes Henry Kissinger. Subtext, he's a war criminal who likes to bomb people. And then she says, well, I like Henry Kissinger because, uh, you know, he opened up China. Just walks right into this buzzsaw where where Bernie Sanders can then give his trade pitch about how China's ripping everybody off. Throughout the debates, she's had these opportunities to really, really just slam the door on Sanders on foreign policy. And she just has not been able to do it. 
they got a question tonight about what leaders did they admire the most. And I think a lot of people on Twitter were like, don't say Henry Kissinger. <laughs> don't say Henry Kissinger. Well, she didn't. So She didn't. But also uh, the question was actually what leader, like a domestic and a foreign leader, would you admire on foreign policy? Or would you let influence your foreign policy? And then Bernie Sanders went off about like FDR and, <laughs> and nothing <laughs> and about Winston foreign Churchill, policy. I think, right? Yeah, he, and he chose Winston Churchill. It was a really weird <laughs> answer. So, so in that respect, I would say that I think on that answer, he looked totally goofy and Hillary did school him. Well, they both really did pick (laughs) dead men to be their foreign policy advisors. Winston Churchill also, okay, like citing that guy, it's it's cheap, it's easy, and it's historically problematic. And Nelson Mandela isn't cheap or easy. It's not historically problematic, (laughs) but it's just like... Uh, but it's just like who was the last subject of a Bono song? Oh, Nelson Mandela. <laughs> well, you can't you can't also say that you like Nelson Mandela anyway, and Henry Kissinger at the same time. That doesn't this, make any sense. I think the salient point, however, is that neither Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, Nelson Mandela, nor Winston Churchill are going to be advising either of these presidents on foreign policy <laughs> unless things have gotten way more metaphysical. <laughs> I think that one of the things that's emerging in these debates is that Clinton is far more better on redirect than Sanders. And I'll, let me, let me, let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Typically you have question, there's answer rebuttal, and then usually they go back for a 30 second extension and then there's a 30 second rebuttal. I think that, I think that in that kind of argumentative format, Clinton's demonstrating on the redirect that she has a lot more, substance to lay out than Sanders does. I think that Sanders, if we're not talking about Wall Street explicitly or talking about the economy or the rig system explicitly, Sanders doesn't have much besides bromides. Uh, when they when they get into talking about Flint, Clinton can talk about specific things she's done right now as a candidate and that she would do while governing. And when it goes back to Sanders, Sanders just has platitudes. In the end, is this going to be a candidacy? Is Sanders' candidacy going to be something that's completely supported by platitudes? Is that enough? I mean, we, you've mentioned that like this stuff plays uh, on social media among followers, but in the wide world, how far can you get on platitudes? Probably pretty far, but <laughs> yep, I mean, he's gone this far. This is a lot farther than anybody <laughs> thought he was going to get. Actually, like not to veer from your question, but that was a really interesting thing that we talked about after New Hampshire was that uh, Sam Levine, who is a great reporter here at HuffPost Politics, went back and looked at the way that the media covered Sanders' entrance into this Democratic race. And it was like every single place, including HuffPost, we're, we're at fault for this too. We're just like, oh, this is going to be like a random thing. It's not really going to pose a challenge to anything. And look how far he's come on that. It's almost like he has more like, you know, like quotes, like good quote cards for Facebook or something, like shareable thing, shareable moments, but not necessarily huh. substantial moments. It, it does seem to me that Clinton is clearly the more schooled, talented policy wonk. It's not obvious to me that her policy positions, though, actually line up with where the Democratic electorate wants to be. And and now that the primary is actually a, a serious contest and not not just, you know, this kind of weird, cranky old guy from Vermont who's doing this quixotic thing for issue-oriented things. Um, if, if people take Bernie Sanders seriously and, and examine the, the two candidates' platforms, it's not obvious to me that that Clinton can get through this thing just based on expertise alone. I think I think her actual platform is going to give her some trouble. Well, I'll tell you, so if we've learned nothing else from these debates, it is that Sanders' average donation is $27 <laughs> and that Marco Rubio's dad was a bartender. That's, oh, yeah. Years years from now, when the aliens who eventually conquer this planet recall this moment, this epic, 
in our history. That's the two things I'll take away. All right, cool. One more debate down. Probably about what seven hundred more to go oh, until God. we're all dead so many or weeping. Nights. I'm already <laughs> weeping. What are you talking about? <laughs> Silently crying always. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It'll end. It'll end. It's actually your job title, right? Paige Lavender, silently Weeper? crying yeah. always for Huffington Post. Yeah. Well, we appreciate every tear you shed. Uh, Paige Lavender, thank you for being here with us today. Zach, you can scuttle back into the tent for a well-deserved nap. We will be right back. And stick around. We have a very good show. Hey, everybody. You know, after I have a long week of watching 70 debates and watching for returns to trickle in from snowbound primaries so we can figure out who's finishing in fourth place... It's wine time. Time to go home, uncork a bottle of Tasty Grape Elixir, and try to unwind. But if you're like me, you probably have no idea what's waiting on the wine rack when you get home. And I'm nobody's idea of a sommelier. Sad to say, left to my own devices, I don't know if I'm uncorking a bottle of Beaujolais Nouveau or Beaujolais No Way until it's way too late. I make a good effort wandering through the grocery store trying to pick something, but if I'm being honest, I'm more often drawn to a flashy label than I am to real knowledge. True story, I once bought a bottle of wine solely because it was named Irony. For the record, it was pretty good, and when it was empty, we all got the joke that Irony was dead. But this is no way to live your life. Fortunately, there's Club W to help you never be without good wine again. Club W is a revolutionary new wine club that sends your wine directly to your door, saving all those trips to the grocery store. Not only does Club W send you wine, they send you wine that you love drinking. Club W starts with a simple six-question quiz to help you define your palate so every bottle you receive is perfectly tailored to your tastes. Club W is leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. They work directly with vineyards to cut out the middlemen, and that saves you money. Club W even offers a no-risk guarantee that you'll love whatever they send you. Now for the good part. Right now, Club W is offering our listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash happened. So don't ever come home to a wine-free house again. Just go to clubw.com slash happened to get 50% off your first order today. And we're back. I am joined now in the studio by Zachary Carter. Woo, getting out of my tent feels so good. Yeah. Good morning, back to the studio. Long all time since we did a tent joke. It's all about that tent. Yeah. It's all about that tent. It always is. And uh, and our best friend, Lauren Weber. Oh, you know, I'm lucky to be here. Author of The Morning Email. And the morning after the New Hampshire primary, I think we have to say... Lauren this, had a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yes. There was a lot to be written <laughs> about. It was a really, really bad night if you were an aristocratic party elite <laughs> of any hard. kind. Now, I have to say, the good, good, good job pollsters. Pollsters said... They did. Trump they got and Sanders right. were going to win. But I think the magnitude of these victories are what... They reveal themselves once you dive down into the demographic crosstabs. Because Donald Trump won a compelling and clear, resounding victory with nearly every demographic group you can name, no matter what the ideology was. Somewhat conservative, very conservative, moderate, all broke for Trump. And Hillary Clinton's loss was as comprehensive as it gets. She literally only kept in her coalition, the only demographic group she won were 
really essentially old rich people. You know, the people who saw her give speeches at he, Goldman Sachs. By age, the only demographic she won was uh, voters over 65. And it was fairly narrow. And she just got trounced in every other demographic. And this was also in a two-way race. So Trump winning convincingly in a seven-way contest, uh, you know, he, he took home, what, 35, 36% of the yeah, vote? Yeah, it was, the it was about 20% more than the next guy, which was Kasich. Yeah, we we saw, we saw Bernie Sanders winning people under 30 by 67 points among Democrats. 67 points was the margin of victory. That's not – it wasn't 67-33. He won by 67 points. It's insane. I mean, that's an incredible stat. I think we also need to mention just I'm staggered by how poorly Hillary Clinton is doing at keeping younger women voters in her coalition. Well, we've had quite the flare-up on that over the last few days, haven't we, Jason? Yes, we have. I mean, here I thought Madeleine Albright and Gloria Steinem were going to fix everything. <laughs> Call and it a septuagenarian then... and an octogenarian when you want to when you want to win over the youngins, right? Yeah, <laughs> clearly the brooches don't have the same appeal as they once did for Albright. No, what is going wrong? I so as as uh, a well-known women woman voter, uh, I, I think. <laughs> I think it's it's not just the um, yeah, look. There, there were there were some tone deaf attacks this week from Gloria Steinem and 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 Madeleine Albright um, that, that I don't think helped. But it, if you look at the polling data in both Iowa and New Hampshire, Clinton really starts going negative against Bernie Sanders at the beginning of the year, and you can see polls in both Iowa and New Hampshire are, had sort of narrowed a little bit there at the beginning of the beginning of the year. As soon as she starts going negative against Bernie Sanders you see things get really, really close in Iowa. It could be that Bernie Sanders was about to kick ass no matter what in, in the new year. But whatever happened, the attacks that Hillary Clinton launched against Bernie Sanders did not work. The attacks on Wall Street reform, the attacks on single-payer health care, and then the attacks that, hey, if you vote for Bernie Sanders, you're a big sexist who doesn't want to see the first woman president. None of those worked. Well, let's, here's, here's an interesting thing I pulled from the, from the exit polling data. Uh, new Hampshireans by a two-to-one margin, this is on the Democratic side, back single-payer health care. Now, Clinton had an opportunity going into this if she held Sanders' margin of victory down, if she could walk out of there with, I think the number was 43.8%. She actually had an opportunity to come out with as many of the delegates that were specifically awarded by the primary results as Sanders did. So in a contest where every percentage point counts, going on the offensive against single-payer health care. Not just saying, Hillary Clinton had the opportunity to say, hey, I don't think that we're going to get this done uh, in the next four years because of the makeup of Congress, and I think that Bernie Sanders well-intentioned, but I think it's what he's saying is unrealistic. Here's what I want to do. I want to hold the line on Obamacare, blah, blah, blah. That may have been sufficient, but she took it a couple steps too far, depicting Sanders as someone who was going to take Medicare away from people. And in a race where every percentage point maybe was necessary, that was a bad state to be doing to to be known for having attacked single payer in that way. I, I think honestly it, it's a bad attack in a democratic primary anywhere. Exactly. I, I think, you know, look, single payer health care has been something that's been on the Democratic Party's agenda and sort of policy awareness since like Harry Truman. So it's not it's not like Democrats don't know 
what what they think about this. And when when they see people demagoguing on it, which frankly she has, I mean, saying that he's he's going to take away your Obamacare, he's going to take away your Medicare. That's that's a pretty ugly attack. It's not fair. It's it's clearly not what's going on. He may change the existing health care that you have. Your health insurance may well change if we go to a single payer system. But he's not going to take away your health insurance. And and nobody, particularly when you're dealing with a Democratic base that's been basically favorable towards single payer health care for yeah, a long time. It just seems time. so silly. I it's mean, just what? not a good attack. It's a move that you, I would not have expected. Yeah, there's this. There, like Zach says, there's a sense that Hillary Clinton's uh, uh, reposts to Sanders' campaign have always sort of been one step further than was actually necessary. And the news today is that she's going to start making Israel policy a big deal. I don't see where that resonates in the Democratic base, except negatively toward her. I mean, is this something? Is this a pitch to? Donors? Surely she doesn't have a problem with donors at this point. Or does she? Honestly, I th- I think a lot of what Clinton's... I, I think a lot of her missteps are really good faith missteps that are the result of her living in, in sort of a different world than the Democratic Party base. I think if she were well attuned to where the Democratic Party base has been over the last five or six years, she wouldn't be making these attacks. She's making these attacks as someone who's been in Democratic Party elite over the last 30 years who is basically where Democratic Party elites were 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, look, being tough on Israel was a really good thing to say in the Democratic Party up through 2000. Remember, Joe Lieberman was That's the true. vice presidential candidate for the, for, for, for the Democratic Party in 2000. Lately, though, however, I mean, I think, I think it's become very clear that particularly with, you know, Bibi not having a particularly good relationship with, um, with Barack Obama, the Democratic Party is not nearly as wedded to a really tough go for Israel, you know, we've got Israel's back no matter what kind of policy. You say, okay, it's, it's just to clarify, when you, you originally say be tough on Israel, you mean be tough in Israel's favor. So, yeah, yeah, sorry. sorry. Yeah. I mean, okay. I mean, be, be, be a, a strongly, strongly, whatever the Israeli government wants to do, the United States has got their back with a lot of money and a lot of military might. That policy to me does not seem to be where the base and the, the sort of pr- the movement of the Democratic Party is going, just as offering, you know, kind of milquetoast economic reforms does not seem to be where the Democratic Party base is going. The second most popular figure in the Democratic Party other than Barack Obama is Elizabeth Warren, and her whole deal is corporate accountability. For, for whatever reason, Clinton hasn't been able to, to sort of harness that, that energy. I just don't think she lives in a world of people who, who are part of that, that sort of movement. I think she lives in a, in a world of party elites who are like, look, things are going pretty good for Democrats. So long as we can get out you know, the black vote and the gay vote, we're going to be okay. Uh, she doesn't live in a world where, where she's thinking like what what people who are part of that black vote, but people who are part of that gay vote are thinking what what their sort of top pro- policy priorities are. The danger now, of course, is moving to second primaries. A lot of the people in the coalition she talked about, blacks, Hispanics, gays, might be more willing right now to give Sanders a second look. And this morning, uh, oh yeah, you saw fa- a lot of that this morning. Fairly influential thought leader in the uh, in with communities of color, Tanahasi Coates, who was on our show uh, a couple weeks ago. <clears throat> said that he would be inclined to vote for Sanders today. So we'll see if that has any kind of spread or influence on things. I think you're right. The speech definitely pointed toward a new twist in the tail as far as this primary season on the Democratic side goes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> on the Republican side, Lauren. Lauren. Yes, Jason. Take the opportunity to gloat oh, no. about your man. No. I mean, no. John Kasich. Jason, have I have I been telling you since the beginning of 2015 that this 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 might happen? Uh, have I been saying this since the beginning medalist. of yeah. 2015 that yeah. John Kasich might 
end up having a shot somehow in this crazy, crazy GOP land. And you know what? He deeply invested in New Hampshire. I think he gave over 100 town hall he did. Uh, presentations in New Hampshire. The problem the Kasich faces now is, is what what is next. Is it what is next? He blew his wad, and I mean, he's hoping for more yeah. donations now. I hate that metaphor. It's yeah, so can gross. we? It's just, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, he had a wad of cash and he blew it. I'm not making a. <laughs> I'm nice. honest. Okay. That was honestly not a masturbation joke. <laughs> Though I'm not, I'm not above making one. Could have been a sex joke too. I mean, I'm not all above kinds making one. Of things, Jason. Well, look, I am so mad about the the Kasich thing because I've been poo pooing Lauren's theory for like three months. Yeah, it's all right, Zach. And he totally, it's totally right, did come through in New Hampshire. Lauren was he right. He did. He did totally come through did. in New Hampshire. Although I will say, I do think that. It you know it remains to be seen on if he can continue to come through. The problem is is that you know he is the you know so to speak establishment lane, and it doesn't look like Jeb Bush is going away. I mean, when is this gonna die? I mean, what? Jeb Bush beat Marco Rubio. I, I know he beat Marco Rubio, it's but astounding. Like, can, do we really believe that Jeb Bush can fix it? Is this? I mean, Jason, you're writing the the Jeb Bush comeback narrative updates. <laughs> what? I mean. Well, yesterday was a good day for the Jeb Bush comeback narrative. The I mean, first, it was, but... The first good day in a long time. Uh, but think about how... He came, to be clear, he came in fourth right, with 11%. Yes. 11%. Fourth. Hillary Clinton got trounced, and she got 38%. Okay, right. just let's keep that That's in perspective. But think about how we're defining this quote-unquote victory comeback for Jeb narrative. Bush. He beat Marco Rubio. He beat the guy who he spent all his money attacking. And in the end, it wasn't even Jeb, brah. Who no, put it down? It wasn't Jeb. Okay. Everybody's been talking about, you know, the second place winners in the GOP primary, and no one is dealing with the fact that Donald Trump did win this last night by twenty percent. I mean Yes, and exact and like I said it's before. It's completely glossed over all the time. He I won mean, he won in every single demographic group you can name. Uh, he demonstrated that ideological leanings of the base doesn't matter. Uh, he's completely divorced from the sort of politics that Republicans have been playing at for a long time. And he's completely divorced from their policy agenda as well. Oh, he's just like a complete wild card. I yeah. mean, I mean, he and Sanders are so, I mean, it, it's, it's very interesting to see both of them. I mean, Sanders is not nearly as, you know, out there as He's not a racist and sexist demagogue. He's not racist and sexist demagogue, but they're such far wings of their party, although Trump is hardly even in well, the party. Well, okay, the difference between Sanders and Trump is really easy to define. That's true. Sanders believes the system is rigged and the people are being cheated because... Uh, money to elite the one percent have have corrupted the system. Trump believes the same thing, only he doesn't point the finger at the money to elite. He says that black and brown people and Muslims and immigrants are, are, are and Furners Chinese are and yeah. Japanese are the reasons this is happening. There were some scary numbers out of New Hampshire uh, of Islamophobia, essentially. Yep, sixty-six uh, percent. Right. I would say if you're a Muslim in America, you're going to want to avoid New Hampshire uh, for the foreseeable. Future. Because what was it? Sixty-six percent of people said yep. that they would ban Muslims from coming yep. to the U.S. That's pretty sad. Yep. So it was. It, tur- it turned out to be a ripe opportunity for for Trump. The question is now, which narrative is true, Iowa or New Hampshire? Is it the he didn't have a good ground game and his s- support is soft, or that he turned out his vote when he needed to and his support is vast and deep? The problem you have going forward is that yeah, we know Iowa and New Hampshire are not particularly representative. Of the rest of the nation, but it's the beauty of the primary. But every, sing, every <laughs> Thanks, single, every single, every single primary state in its own way is not representative of the whole country. 
And it certainly looks like Trump's poised to win again in South Carolina. How does the establishment sort this out short of entering the, quote, establishment candidates into a sort of like death side match. action death match? That's what I'm saying. I mean, it, it's uh, Kasich and Rubio and Jeb Bush kind of need to figure this out or else they're all going to die. They're all cannibalizing each other. I think they're done. I mean, look, I, you, you have a chance for Ted Cruz to pick up some some states in the South, right? He'll, he'll definitely take some delegates at the very least. Uh, but look. Especially when you get to Super Tuesday. These are not states where... When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply candidates can afford to spend a lot of time with a, a, a robust ground game. People who just have a good TV game tend to win those states. So on the Democratic side, you have a pretty even money race between Clinton and Sanders right now. So it, the, the question there is whether Sanders' ability to spend the money that he's raised from small dollar donations can make up the, you know, the, the, the difference in the national, the, the gap a, a, among that he has with Clinton among uh, voters nationally. For Trump, he's got a big, big lead among voters nationally. And he's got money, and he and he's been running his whole campaign on TV stuff, not on ground game. I mean, we wrote a piece after Iowa, like not they, on ads, but on him just showing up on TV. Yeah, for to make it clear. Yeah, I mean, if if your strategy is a TV strategy, Super Tuesday is is your day. You should be able to do well there. I do not see anything stopping this guy from getting the nomination right now. That neither do I. Do you see anything stopping him? I John don't. Kasich. I don't think John Kasich has that much in him, but I'm I'm pleased that he's made it at least this far. All right. Well, we have we have little consolation for the losers today. No. Uh, all you guys better better stop and think about what's going on. Uh, in the meantime, we will be right back. Hey guys, we know that many of you who listen to this podcast do so while you're in the car, driving to and from work hoping to pass the time as you commute to your job. But we also know that many of you share something in common with millions of Americans. When you get in your vehicle, you're already at your job. Well, thanks for listening. Here's something that we can do for you. When your livelihood depends on the time you spend behind your wheel, tracking the mileage you travel is often a big part of your income. And getting your mileage right is often critical to keeping profits up and expenses down. You've got to do it. Guesstimating could mean losing money. But logging that mileage can be a painstaking chore. So let's help relieve that burden by getting you on MileIQ. MileIQ is the solution you've been looking for. MileIQ is the number one mileage tracker app and is trusted by millions of Americans. 
MileIQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects logs and calculates your drives for you automatically. No more scribbling on post-it notes. No more guesswork at the end of a long day. MileIQ is easy to use, and it keeps all of your drives securely stored in the cloud. If you drive for work and you're not counting every single mile, then you're burning money every time you take a drive. In fact, the average MileIQ user logs $547 a month in drives. MileIQ does all the work for you. You just install it on your smartphone, and it runs in the background recording your trips. It's your calculator and your memory, and it's easy interface is a breeze to use, letting you focus on what's important. MileIQ is one of the few apps in the App Store that actually makes you money. It's no wonder that so many people use MileIQ, and it's not a surprise that the app has earned a ton of five-star ratings in both the Google Play and iTunes App Stores. In fact, the folks at MileIQ are so confident you'll join them that they're making a special offer just for you. Just text HAPPENED to 31996, and you can start a 40-drive free trial. And if you have created an account this week, you'll get 20% off an annual plan. So stop wasting time manually tracking your miles and stop losing money you should be claiming. Take MileIQ out for a free 40-drive trial and take 20% off an annual plan by texting HAPPENED to 31996. That's HAPPENED to 31996. Standard messaging and data rates apply. And we're back. You know, longtime listeners of this show probably understand by now that the payday lending industry is a scam-infested racket of evil people who prey on the poor. Finally, there's some good news, maybe, potentially, about ratting out this filth from our society. And joining us to talk about this is our esteemed colleague, Christina Wilkie, new mom, Christina Wilkie. Ace reporter, Christina Wilkie. Christina, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Hey, man, I'm glad to have you on. So tell us about what is going on in the state of Mississippi. So this week, I've been reporting on a major investigation that's just concluded in Mississippi that is probably going to shut down the largest independent payday lender in the state. Fuck yeah. Hurrah! It's a pretty big deal. It is a big deal, and it's especially a big deal in Mississippi, um, considering the history of the state. Mississippi, obviously, is one of the poorest states in the nation. Forty percent of its adults are unbanked or underbanked, so they don't have checking accounts. And in Mississippi, it's a multi-generational thing of people whose parents and grandparents didn't use the banking system, or it dates back to the Jim Crow era where Mm -hmm. people weren't given access to the banking system. So there really is a lot of skepticism of banks naturally among some of Mississippi's most vulnerable people. So when people take home a paycheck, just their work, they're doing their daily, their weekly paycheck, they have nowhere to take it other than perhaps a payday Exactly, letter. a check casher. Mm, so yeah. the company in question here is called All American Check Cashing, and they will take your paycheck and they will give you a small portion of it and they will keep an enormous fee. And then when you get your next paycheck, the next two weeks, and you need to, to pay off that last loan, they will demand another fee. They will roll over your loan. And on average, the average adult takes um, takes 10, 10 payday loans out a year. So they're not even getting cash on the dollar here. They're getting no. usury in, in return for a portion of their take-home pay. 572%. 
interest I mean, rates. I mean, it, you know, what, I think one of the things that's interesting about this, um, Christina, is that you, you're, you're sort of highlighting, people know, I think some people know that payday loans are like a bad thing. You don't want to do that. Some people know that title loans are not a good thing. You don't want to do that. Title loans when you, you basically take, take out a loan and, and say, okay, if I don't repay this, you get to take, take my car. That's arguably even worse than a payday loan. Right. What people forget is that a lot of the people who issue these different types of highly targeted, low-income financial po- products are really running the same shops. And the check cashing business is often just sort of a storefront to get people, okay, you can t- you want to cash your check? Here you go. We'll charge you a $20 fee. You can cash your, your $120 check, no problem. But, you know, if, if 100 bucks is not going to cut it for you this week, let me tell you. Well, and it's one of the interesting things. I spent a lot of time in Mississippi. I'm married to a Mississippi native. And this summer I went to about a dozen payday lending storefronts in Mississippi. And what I expected to see were these sort of craven old men who were waiting with their like curly fingernails to steal my money. <laughs> and, and what I found instead was that the, the payday lending storefronts are staffed by incredibly sweet women who make you feel very much at home and call you honey and say, you know, honey, let's just help you with your problems. And there is no sense of shame, and you feel you you want to trust them instinctively, and it was just it was a different model. Now it makes sense to me, of course, because they're erasing the shame that one might feel about taking ten loans out a year that you can't pay back, and they're encouraging you. So if you were to come in and and need your paycheck cash, they'd say, "Honey, do you have enough for this week's bills? You know, do you need a little more? We can do that. That's not a problem." And they just, I mean, it was. Very disarming after expecting, you know, a gnarled old mean man. Right. So to give our listeners some background here on payday loans. I sure. mean, um, uh, the, uh, the, the Pew Centers, I think it's Pew Charitable Trust. It might be the Pew Research Center. One of these Pew organizations has done some very good research on payday loans and basically found that essentially what typically happens when people take out payday loans, they're trying to do it to avoid, say, going to friends or relatives to borrow yeah. money from them because it's kind right. of embarrassing to say, hey, mom. I'm really hard up this week. Or in the case of America's poorest people, because their friends and relatives don't have any money either. And what ultimately happens, though, for most people is that they end up having to go to friends and relatives for money after racking up a ton of debt in in the form of payday loans. So they actually end up being driven further into into the same sort of problem that they were trying to avoid uh, in in the first place. And, And we know that this is a business strategy for at least the largest national payday lenders, because Ace Cash Express has been busted by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which I think, Christina, you want to talk yeah. about in a, in, a, in a second here, um, for literally, I mean, there are literally internal documents showing, here's how we can get our sales professionals to trap our customers in a cycle of debt that they will never repay. Right. And they've been busted for that and fined. So, and so one tell of the scariest things about these payday lenders is the good research has been done that shows that they don't even begin to turn a profit until a, a borrower has taken out six or seven loans. So obviously you're going to lose some money on these loans because a lot of them don't get paid back. These are vulnerable people. So the company's whole business model is based on rolling over, is the term, on rolling over loans. And rolling over is illegal in a lot of states, but it still happens. And that's actually at the crux of this Mississippi case. So the idea there is that you take out one, you know, a $300 loan because you're, you've got to pay the electrical bills. Right. But then you've got to take out a $330 loan because you couldn't pay off the first loan. This right. is the and same then, business model that black tar heroin dealers use. You get a taste up front. Sure. And then you're given your... The, the, and there's no way out. Yeah, and then there's no way out. And these shops, and then they will, once you're in debt to them for $1,000 or more, then they'll want your car title. 
And they also, they prey on, they, they demand access to your checking account in order for you to get your first loan. So they really prey on these really desperate moments when you need to pay a child's medical bill or, you know, you need to, to do something for, for your family or, put, or pay your rent or put food on the table. They get you. And then when you're desperate, they ask you for access to your employer. So they garnish your wages if you get behind. They can, they'll take out money out of your checking account, which has been the source of a number of DOJ investigations. Um, they, then they'll ask you for your car, which in a place like Mississippi means you don't have any way to get to work. Yeah, yeah. So they really just, they hit you at these very desperate times with this kind message, and it, they're just snakes. So what has happened here in Mississippi that has changed this? I mean, it's, it, it is unusual for a, Mississippi is not well known for its robust consumer protection standards, <laughs> let's say. Right. Um, what, what has happened that has suddenly made uh, the state, you know, take a critical eye to one of its, to its largest payday lender? Right. And when we say these largest payday lenders, they also, we have to remember, are great political contributors. Yeah. So they, you know, in state politics, it is easy to grease the wheels for much smaller sums than you'd be paying in national politics. Yeah, this ain't no Senate race. So, uh, you know, $3,000, $4,000 can get you a vote that you need if you're a payday lending company. And these rules are complicated. So a lot of, you know, some legislators don't know what the rules are. They're complicated financial terms. So the laws, you can't necessarily rely on the state laws or their enforcement but something that's changed in the past couple of years is that the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in Washington has put wind in the sails of a lot of these small state divisions that you, that used to not have any central information resource. They used to be fighting legislatures with not necessarily any help from anybody. And the CFPB has put together a crack team of lawyers and investigators, and they've made themselves, they collect complaints, of which many come from Mississippi, from people who've been basically abused by these these loan systems. And they, I mean, they've proposed new rules that are now being discussed. Yeah, but federal regulations would, you know, put a lot of payday lenders out of business, yes. uh, according to the payday loan industry, but also just basically stop the the, the rollover business, essentially, right. is, is and what to they're hear them, to, to hear the payday lenders describe why they'd go out of business is so funny because, I mean, they, so the proposals say capping loans at 36 or 40 percent and uh, or having to ensure that the people you're lending to um, have the money to pay you back, <laughs> you know, have any assets at all. And that's, and you, to hear these payday lenders clutch their pearls and say, you know, oh, we'd never survive. It'd be terrible. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think there's some truth to the argument from these these sort of low-income, small-dollar lender right. folks. That, Short-term that, loans. Right. Like, these, these people, they're right that they don't invent the demand for this product. They don't create the poverty, okay? So it's, it's sort of on the federal government to, like, get its act together and stop having so much poverty. We've talked about ways to do that, you know, like maybe looking at, say, Social Security and say, just give people more money. They won't be so poor. But so long as you have poor people, you, you are going to have a demand for these products. But at the same time... These guys also say, insist over and over again, no, 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 we do not try to trap people in these cycles of debt. That's not what we do. We just offer a really transparent, clear financial product. And then when it comes time to look into, are you trapping people in a cycle of debt? Suddenly you can't find the documents. And suddenly the regulations are going to drive them out of business. Exactly. <laughs> That's what you hear from the lobbyists. And suddenly you also try to look through the forms that I asked for and I got. I actually went into about a dozen places in Mississippi and applied for a payday loan just to see wow. what they would give me. 
Um, it was funny. I had my father-in-law driving me, who <laughs> lives down there, and so he'd never been to this part of town. He was a little surprised. Um, that's like, the thing. Christina, what, what, uh, we need to talk about this new are job. Are you sure <laughs> you're going to get out of the car here? Uh, you know, they'd give me this paperwork that, what, you know, Zach and I have been reporting on financial stuff for years, and this paperwork challenged all of my reporting experience to understand what what co- different kinds of interest rates they were charging on what different kinds of maximum annual percentage, delayed fee, discount. I mean, it was an absolute quagmire. So to think that somebody who was who was who maybe had a high school education or was undereducated could make their way through this, that these companies are being clear, it's just it's just you got, yes. you, got, you got an origination fee, you got a late fee, you got an interest rate, you got all this stuff that adds right. up to how much? I don't know. It's only going to cost you. We're going to give you three hundred dollars right now. What are you talking about? It doesn't cost you anything. Right. You, we'll, we'll just take our eighty-eight dollars <laughs> out of that, and then you said this in the show before. All financial products boil down to either insur- selling insurance or lending money, and so if there's any complication added to that, you're probably getting rooked or rooking somebody. Right. And Mississippi's an especially hard state, obviously because there's a lot of po- poverty, because people are underbanked, because it's rural. But they also, I mean, employers have done very little. There are a couple of examples of employers lending to employees, which is actually a much safer way to to give people a short-term bridge loan. But as long as you have these small state legislatures, many of which are conservative, they can be bought for a penny on the dollar, so to speak, if you're, yeah. if you're a D.C. lobbying firm. And you know, and they don't understand the rules to begin with. It takes the CFPB and a, and a federal arm and a federal. Uh, I don't know what you how you describe you know, they, it. They sort of set set a standard, right? Yeah. So in addition to the resources they can they can provide to help a state agency, you know, look look, we've got data, we can help you with this with your investigation. They also set a standard saying, hey, you know. If you're worried about, you know, cracking down too hard on these payday lenders and losing, you know, losing all this business and having to go across the state, you don't have to worry about that anymore because you can't do it if you go across the state. It's illegal everywhere, but based on the federal standard. So you've got to be tough. If you want to be tough, if you think they're being predatory and you want to shape these guys up, you can. And if you think that they're actually so, so bad that, that you don't want them doing business in your state, you've got somebody at the federal level who can help you. Right. And that's actually that's just been a, a huge boon, I think, to a lot of states and a lot of, in, of investigators who had nowhere to look. All right. Well, Christina, your story is hitting the Huffington Post this week, today, I believe. Her name is spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A, Wilkie, W-I-L-K-I-E. And uh, we were really glad to have you on the show today. And Thanks I hope you to come you back like a bunch of times. Okay. All right. Cool. Cool. Hey, guys. We'll be right back. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. Welcome back. So we are going to, once again, turn our attention 
to Flint, Michigan, where an ongoing lead water crisis has engulfed both the city, the state, and really the country. Now it's become a hot point of tension in the 2016 election. Uh, joining me now to talk about it, Arthur Delaney. Hi. So, Arthur, you have some positive things to talk about today about Flint. We're going to have some, maybe some good news. Uh, but let's talk about the state of play right now. What's what's going on in Flint right now, just to keep people updated. So much continues to go on with Flint. For one, the, the water's still not safe. They don't know when it will have lower levels of lead. They say they've been going down, but still, don't drink it. On top of that, there's a boil water advisory right now. So previously, you could uh, you know wash a vegetable with the water there even if you didn't want to drink it. But now you can't even do that. Because there's bacteria of some kind. Yeah, they, they said they had low water pressure, which is, you know, I'm not certain what caused that, but, like, the system's too big for the city's population because the population's gone down. So that might be a problem. But anyway, you can't even brush your teeth with it right now. Wow. So that's that's awful. Uh, but the people are being supplied with water in the interim, Correct. Yeah, I mean, the, the bottled water delivery efforts and the delivery of filters for people's faucets has been ongoing. So what what the Boyle Water Advisory says, if you have bottled water, you should just go ahead and use that rather than bother with boiling your water. There you go. There you so go. hopefully people are out there still getting bottled water, though. You know, there's been some question how effective that is. Hillary Clinton said at the last debate that the door-to-door delivery isn't what it could be. Sure. And then, of course, you have plastic bottles piling up in Flint, Michigan, which has its own environmental impact. Um, there's also hearings go ongoing right now. Yeah, this week, the Democrats held a hearing. They were so pissed that when the Republicans had a hearing last week, they called all these EPA and, and Michigan officials, but not Governor Snyder. And Governor Snyder right now has been a political pinata. Democrats are hammering him because he had an emergency manager in charge of Flint, which is, uh, you know, basically usurping the city's power, saying its finances are too whack for them to govern themselves. And that's who was in charge when this all started in 2014. Yeah, it was a, quite a victory for the meritocracy to see this happen in Flint. Uh, and but, but Snyder is still firing people. Uh, still trying to find money to solve this problem. I know the mayor of Flint has asked for fifty-five uh, million. I want to say that's right. Yeah, she's got a plan to dig up the pipes, so Flint could be like one of the only cities where they dig up the lead pipes. The national policy on lead pipes is right now is just leave them there, leave them underground, and and watch the level of lead in the water. Just kind of hope it doesn't get poisonous. And that kind of brings us to the point you make in uh in, in your recent piece, the 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 positive side of the Flint water crisis. You go back to an old lead water crisis right here in Washington DC. Yeah. And uh basically I I I think that the the basic thrust of your piece is that what we have in Flint is at least a situation in which use the term deceptive narratives didn't take root. So could you explain that? They got caught. They got caught. They caught the perps in Flint. What has happened in the past, and what it could be happening somewhere today, and we just don't know, is that there could be high levels of lead in the water, and the government just gets away with not fixing it. 
they deny that it's happening or that anyone's getting hurt or they claim they're fixing it and they're not. And so f- they were trying to do that last year in Flint and they they didn't get away with it. So take take me through the uh, what happened in Washington D.C. because uh, we've seen uh, D.C.'s lead experience uh, as a sort of point of comparison uh, during this entire situation in Flint. Yeah, from two thousand one through two thousand four, the District of Columbia, also a majority black city, under the control you know you know with with questionable home rule status, had high lead in its water for essentially the same reason. They didn't treat it correctly. And people found out about it belatedly, like two years after the fact, and it was ongoing. And it became a crisis, but then it went away because the Centers for Disease Control put out this report saying, you know, according to our analysis, no children actually suffered high blood lead levels. Oh, God, really? Right. It, it goes, it, it, and, you know, people were saying you can't even get lead poisoning from leaded water, which we've known to be actually something that can happen for like since Roman times. So essentially in Washington, D.C., when a similar crisis happened, uh, it all got swept under the rug. Yeah, nobody got fired. Nobody apologized. And it, it came to light five years later in 2009 that actually, yes, city children here in D.C. had suffered high blood lead levels during the years that the water had high lead levels, which is what you would scientifically expect to happen. We didn't have like a miracle and avoid this bullet. And still there's no real acknowledgement that something had gone wrong here, uh, which there is with Flint. The accountability that's happening in Flint, even though people want Rick Snyder to resign, I think it, it shouldn't be taken for granted that he's apologizing and people are getting fired. This is still kind of like a grim positive to me because so we have one instance in which the perps got caught, as you say. Yeah. Uh, and everyone's at least being, there's, there's at least the, I guess, pageantry of being held to account, whether or not Flint gets new pipes is an open question, whether or not they solve this problem is an open question. Whether or not people take responsibility for it is an open question. I, I understand that one investigator has put the possibility of manslaughter charges on the table yeah. for those responsible. Uh, I think the, I'm no legal expert by any means, but I think in that sort of circumstance, you still have to prove that officials knowingly ignored a crisis or displayed you know, some level of either uh, negligence or depraved indifference to a crisis they knew was happening. Yeah, they probably won't get them on that, but the fact that they're talking about it is important. Yeah, I don't live in a world where I expect the perpetrators of high crimes and misdemeanors against the poor to ever do time in jail. I mean, that's just not something that really happens a lot in America. So why it's grim to me is is surely there are other communities all around this, all across this country, uh, where people are getting their water supply from lead pipes. Oh, yeah. 10 million homes and businesses have lead pipes serving them. So this is something that could crop up again and again. What's the, what's the formula now for making sure that people are held accountable? I, the, the formula is citizens being vigilant and complaining a lot. It, it takes non-government actors to make this happen. 
Uh, but I I think the the good thing is that at, at least that was proven effective in Flint. And, you know, maybe the conversation will begin to change to oops, from oops to let's dig up the pipes. Because we've been doing this for more than a hundred years. Right. Occasionally it's it's there's a mild controversy over lead in the water because we have lead pipes, but we don't dig them up. But we could you know the national policy could change uh with with increased attention so to how ba- this happens. In in Flint what what really I think tipped the balance was that parents in Flint uh complained about the smell of the water, the look of the water, and they made their case to their pediatricians, their children's pediatricians, and and uh, we 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 spoke to one of them who who uh, then really beat the drums about what was happening. Well, in Flint, it, it was it was tested do- the water. Doctor Mona Hannah Atisha at the yes. the Hurley Medical Center actually she did her study proving the high lead levels because she was having dinner with someone who'd worked for the EPA here in D.C. when the lead and water crisis happened here. And that person told her the key to proving this is getting blood levels, uh, blood data about kids independently because the government already had it and dismissed it. So she did it herself. That was the same thing that was used in 2009 to prove that there had been elevated blood lead here in D.C. So so the D.C. crisis helped prevent the Flint lies from... Winning the day. Yeah. So I, I think there, it's possible that this could be a turning point in how the public health risk of lead pipes is handled by governments. Well, I definitely want to see it become easier for people to correct these mistakes, save their communities this pain. Yeah. Their children they were going to let them keep drinking the brown water yeah, that for, smelled and tasted in, weird. In perpetuity, even while... Even while uh, Auto manufacturers in the same area were eschewing the water. Yeah, this water was, was gross. It was gross and corrosive. Uh, well, I guess you know. At least we can say today, people have a plan of attack. It's just about, I don't stay like you say, staying vigilant, trying to involve actors who will uh, take it upon themselves to do the medical research necessary. I hope that anyone out there who's living in a community where you suspect there's something wrong with the water. Uh... Check if your utility even vouches for it, if there's somebody pregnant or you have young children, or if they actually say you need to make sure you don't have a lead service line on your property yeah, that it's you a, didn't put there. It's a sad state of affairs where uh, people have to take time out of their busy lives, especially people in poor communities where time is as precious as money, uh, to essentially beg for their own well-being, but that's where we're at. At least in Flint, we have the makings of a strategy so that maybe this doesn't ever happen again. Uh, Arthur, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we will keep track of this uh, ongoing story in future podcasts. And, of course, we wish everyone in Flint, Michigan, well, and we hope they get the justice they deserve. We will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We're always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Paige Lavender, Lauren Weber, and Christina Wilkie. 
This podcast was sponsored by Club W, the revolutionary new wine club that brings delicious bottles of wine right to your door. We are also sponsored by Mile IQ, the mileage tracker app that's helping millions of Americans make more money. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store while you're there and subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.